0: As of the recording of this show, the prime interest rate in the United States, six and a quarter, 6.25%. In March, only 3.5%. So 6.25 versus 3.5. The low rate, good or bad for the economy. How about the higher rate, good or bad? Where do rates come from? Who sets them? And what's the history of interest? We are going to get the answers to all of these questions and more. Our guest is Edward Chancellor. His book, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest. I'm Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf. Again, our guest is Edward Chancellor. His book is The Price of Time. In a recent article in The Economist, I read where $10 trillion in interest had been paid globally last year. $10 trillion. I can't even comprehend that number. The first question I had for Edward was, what comes to mind when he hears or sees a number like this?
1: Well, uh, your you're giving me the denominator, the interest charge, and then the question is, what's the numerator? And um, because you'd flagged this to me before we started speaking, I I quickly looked up what the numerator is, and according uh, to the data I saw, the global debt estimate, and bear in mind, these these are just wild estimates, but the estimate is $300 Dollars of global debt. So, okay, so that, so what you're telling me is that the interest payment paid last year was 3.3%, to which I say that seems like quite a low figure historically. Now, there is a, you know, there's a great history of interest rates written by Sidney Homer and Richard Siller. Sidney Homer was, uh, I think, head of research at Salomon Brothers and its. Glory days, and uh, Dick Siller uh, is a um, finance his his history teacher professor at NYU who sort of did the book with with or updated Sydney Homer's original book. So Dick Siller says the average rate of interest uh, o- over time is around six percent. So your ten trillion is actually. Um, just above half the average rate of interest one might have expected over the great arc of history. Now, that that doesn't mean that the sum is also not quite a large sum. And this is, this is the problem that I think we'll probably get down to, which is that interest rates have been extremely low around the world in most places uh, for the last, at least for the last 12, 13 years. Now, The natural reaction of individuals, companies, and governments is to target an acceptable level of debt service, um, and what's you know uh, collected in aggregate, what's called the debt service ratio. So, what has happened is that um, as interest rates come down, the actual amount of interest paid has remained relatively constant, but the amount of debt that it's being that it's sporting is much larger. So had you said to me, hmm, global debt is three hundred trillion uh three hundred trillion dollars, I would have said, yeah, that's quite a big sum. <laughs> I wonder whether it's going to be paid off.
0: Your book has to be the most analytical analysis. That's that's needless redundancy. This is the deepest dive analytically I've ever read on this topic. And we're going to get into some of the history that you uh, unearthed in a few minutes. My question is, where did this fascination come from? Because again, I'm reading the first chapter, it's like, holy cow, he had to have taken months, if not more, uh, more than a year, just that you're smiling. Uh, where did this fascination come from?
1: More than a year. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, the 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 artist, uh, the American 19th century artist, um, James McNeil Whistler was uh, in court um, because he was accused of overcharging for a picture. And the, the judge said to him, how long did it take? This, pa- this painting only took you half a day to paint, and and Whistler said, yes, and the genius of a lifetime. I'm not saying that this book taught me the genius of a lifetime, but I think I've been thinking around the topic of interest um, and what it did, <laughs> and particularly bearing in mind that my sort of earlier background was writing about speculative bubbles, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, I, I think I've been thinking about that roughly for the last... Twenty years, and then during the period of the global credit boom, I, I wrote a report for a a hedge fund manager in 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 London, uh, macro hedge fund manager, and that was quite a long sort of um, hundred thousand word report, which was called "Crunch Time for Credit," and it was really looking at the global credit boom, and there was quite a lot of stuff about interest there, then. Uh, afterwards, I got a job uh, with the Boston investment firm GMO, uh, run by Jeremy Grantham, and I was there sort of, you know, um, you know, throughout the global financial crisis and the immediate aftermath. And as you remember, uh, you know, it, it, interest rates came down, you know, Fed funds rate came down to zero after the global financial crisis, and um, Fed expanded its balance sheet. And if you were looking at the world from an investment perspective, um, we saw some quite strange things going on. I and mean, for instance, we saw immediate re- rebound in commodity prices after two thousand eight, two thousand nine, into what you know, GMA we would call bubble territories. So two standard deviations from their long-term real trend. We saw U.S. Uh, Equity prices. Bear in mind, we—I was working in the asset allocation department, so we had to choose between you know which markets to buy. We saw U.S. equity markets rebound to what, by historic levels, were were pretty pretty um, expensive, and we saw uh, a lot of uh, what what in investment we call sort of carry trading. Uh, people sort of investing for yield pickup um in particular money flowing from the us into emerging markets so on and we also saw this tremendous uh real estate investment and credit boom going on in china so um, so and at the same time us short-term rates were low and the uh long-term treasury bond yields were were low Historically, and we kept on thinking. And if you remember, uh, you know, Japanese government bond yield was you know, next to nothing, and we kept on thinking, you know, these bond yields are going to come back; they're going to go up, you know. And and because we were running a hedge fund too, we were shorting these bonds, and we were losing money. And I just I came to the view that you couldn't really understand what was going on in either the uh, investment world or the financial world. Or, if you will, the real economy, without really understanding what these very low interest rates—the uh, effect they were having—and so that that really, and then I, you know, look when one's interested in a subject, one then looks around to see, you know, has anyone written a book that can answer all your questions? And when I thought, well, there wasn't such a book around, uh, that uh, became sort of basis for actually putting this book together which um took me roughly sort of 5 or 6 years <laughs> not, not not 6 or 12 months but so it was it, and, but a lot of it was involved in you know rewriting because you know one's writing about um the quite complicated subjects and I was trying to put it in a way that uh, the the educated layperson person uh, would would be able to understand
0: i love business history of any kind in fact i would even go so far I wish in the U.S. and maybe you believe the same thing in the U.K. I wish even in in undergraduate studies in business there is a required course of business history Of course. You'd have to figure out what are we going to focus on, but again, I love the historical content and it is rich.
1: And because the we, as my friend Jim Grant, uh, you know, probably the best American financial historian. Uh, today, I've written a whole slew of books, but Jim says, "You, know, we always step on the same rake, <laughs> and because we step on the same rake, uh, it sort of helps to know what rakes were stepped on in the past." And um, I'm not saying that, you know, the um, financial history is, you know, going to give you, you know, what in investment terms we call a lot of alpha. Because the trouble with the historians is they're often really early. Having said that, um, the, the historians got the dot-com bubble. They sort of got the, and they got the, the the credit boom on the whole. So it was the the economists who sort of were blindsided by the great events, financial events of the last twenty five years. It was I think the historians um, who you know who who knew what had happened in the past were, were um, more 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 apprised of, of what was going on.
0: I have about 13, 14 items that I just wrote down bullet points in some of the historical context of interest. And one of them is that you dispelled a myth. I thought, I thought you've got paper money, you got interest. No, interest predated
1: currency, right? It yeah, things simple. You can think of sort of uh, precious metals. Um, and what we... We, what we see is we we have evidence of interest being charged back five millennia, but we actually have our first coins struck in, in ancient Greece uh, around 700 BC. So you've got many, uh, we've, you've got you know, two and a half millennia, roughly, of interest being charged. And as I point out, but before the invention of money, before well before the invention of cash of coinage. And as I point out, if you look at any of the ancient origins, the etymologies of the word interest in in uh, Assyrian, Mesopotamian, Egyptian, Greek, they, they tend to be related to the words for calves and lambs and uh, and and and, um, and kid goats. So there is this um, there is this sense that interest probably originated in prehistoric times with loans of agricultural commodities uh, so you know for instance you know if you you might borrow a calf a cow from me and and then you know return the cow with a calf in a, in a year's time and, and and by the way as you know I point out that the Americans in the in the, in the west were were still lending cattle uh, uh, it, you know for, with, with with charging interest in terms of calves right into the early 20th century. So that that is probably the origins of of interest.
0: You also set the record straight for me on usury. Now, my ancient history of of Hebrew law from the Torah, I mean, there are negative, uh, there's this negative vibe about lending to your brother who's poor. So, I always thought of the word usury as a bad word. Usury is not a bad word. Could you explain
1: that? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it is. Um, it, it is. It, 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 I think I cite at one stage a definition of this great uh, English legal scholar, William Blackstone, writing, I think, in the 18th century, where he says uh, that the lending of, of money for gain is is known as usury by those who disapprove of it, and interest by those who approve of it. So I'm mean, that's paraphrasing. Um, if you go, so that the, the the word usury comes from the Latin usus, meaning use. Uh, there is this, um, I, I I point out, I think there's a misunderstanding about the nature of lending and the charging of interest or usury that goes back. To ancient times, um, where and you can and I cite you know the philosopher Greek philosopher Aristotle, where he says you know it's wrong to charge uh, usury uh, because money is intended for exchange and does not increase of itself. And I mean, first of all, it's not quite clear why where Aristotle got this idea that money should use only for exchange, because money, as we know, is also a store, or at least it was until this year, it was a store of value, and you, it was a way of carrying value through time. Now, when you um, if you lend uh, something to a person and demand it immediately back with An increment, interest, or usury, then that uh, is is quite patently a sort of unfair transaction because then one really would be charging more than than uh, than one had given. However, if you give someone the use of something, whether it's money, a cow, a a sack of corn, or or even you know the the use of a house uh, over a period of time, that period of time has Value, and it, it obviously has value if something is being put f- to a commercial use because you can rent out the house, you can take, you can sow the corn, you can breed from the cattle, from the, cap, from the cow, or if it's capital, which incidentally also derives from the word for cow, <laughs> if it's capital, uh, you can then, uh, if you're if you're prudent and and hardworking and diligent. Perhaps lucky, you can um, actually increase that capital. So the the, the lender is sharing some; he's taking is sharing in some of the gain of the borrower because the borrower has use of the lender's capital. And under those circumstances, uh, then I don't think lending or is wrong uh, or, or exploited. And obviously. You know, from the ancient world through to the modern world, you get cases of um, of, of of exploitation. You know, of these very high, uh, you know, annual percentage rate charges when people are desperate for payday loans, and you you know you have cases right up to the modern day in and in, in which people, uh, perhaps poor peasant farmers, c- fall into a state of debt bondage. Because the interest payments are too high, and this is—I mean, if you go back to the sort of Hebrew injunctions against uh, uh, against um, lending usury, there was this word, you know, neshek, uh, meaning a a serpent's bite. Yeah, and so, so in a way, yes, you know, in in an agricultural or primitive economy, high rates of interest can be exploitative and lead. to debt bondage and slavery at times, but in an in a modern economy, uh, interest. I mean, I'm not talking about whether it's too high or too low. of timing, but uh, let's say a fair rate of interest is is one in, in which both the uh, borrower and the lender derive uh, an equal advantage.
0: One of my interpretations of what you just said is interest. It's on the title of the book: "Is the Price of Time." Great definition. But to extend that, there is a value. Now, by the way, I'm using your words. There is a value to time for both the lender and the borrower. So to me, that makes sense. And it puts usury, in my opinion, in its proper context. There's not that negative yes, connotation. But, but actually,
1: I actually go slightly further than that. And, um, and say that human beings, being naturally impatient creatures, prefer... Their benefits today than at some future date, so that the, the present is more valuable than future. If Someone says, "I'm going to give you something in five years' time," and or give it to you today. You prefer to have it today, not not just because you get the use of it over that you know now, but also in fact, there's an uncertainty of the future. So you don't even know really whether you're going to get it in five years' time. So, so this the, what what the economists call time preference. Uh, which um, the the great American economist Irving Fisher called um, crystallized, crystallized impatience <laughs> is, is the interest. And see, what 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 is interesting is that actually, even if you have a completely non-monetary economy, so take if you, even if you lived in a world without money, only with barter, or, or go, or even if you live in a in a communist society in which the state is, um, is determining the allocation of capital and consumption. So you still have interest embedded in people's behavior, the, or the time preference. So it, it, is, it is as, going back to Irving Fisher, and this is really a key insight, is that interest is an omnipresent phenomenon. It, you can't see it, but it is there everywhere. And where I'm be- I didn't actually put this in the book. So this is sort of thought I had after the book. In the towards the end of the book, I discuss Warren Buffett saying, making a comment about valuation and interest, where he says, if you remember, uh, you know, uh interest is to valuation, what gravity is to matter. And 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 what, what Buffett's saying there, he's trying to explain why all these asset prices were so high a couple of years ago. And now I'm thinking about uh, his, Buffett's use of the term gravity. Now you can see interest, if it's omnipresent, is like a sort of gravitational force around the entire economy, financial system, and if you will, human civilization. I mean that that's sort of talking it up slightly, but I think I think there's an element of truth in that comment.
0: I'd never heard that. And by the way, just a quick shout out. You mentioned the Marsha Mallow test. And I was wondering if he's going to bring that up. But we'll, we'll say that for a, another time. Hey, one more thing. So every, every CEO, every CFO, we know what interest is. Well, when we think of interest, we think of it as being that line item near the bottom of the, the P&L. But I do want to talk, sticking to history just for a little bit more, if it's okay, where did interest rates come from? And this is, again, one of my favorite parts of the book, because you talk about the Roman Empire. You, you talk about these different societies. And in your answer, if you don't mind, could you also include the U-curve, which is also, I love that, and you're smiling. But again, where where did interest rates come from? And we're to, By the way, let's say... You can say you can start with post-Renaissance or if you want to go a little bit pre-Renaissance, that's fine too.
1: The different civilizations tended to have had different rates of interest. So the, Bab- the Mesopotamian Babylonians had their own, their own interests, which were sort of um, 20 and 30 percent, depending on sort of silver and barley loans. The, the Greeks' interest, the ancient Greeks' interest was around... 10%, and then the Romans, complicatedly, have a sort of 12% average. So, And, the, and the actually, if you go through to the modern day, we've had these different sort of currency regimes over the last 150 years, gold standard, something called the gold exchange standard, then we have the sort of Bretton Woods post-war system, and then we've got the sort of free-for-all we have today called the dollar standard. And um, each of those monetary regimes... Seems to have a slightly different interest rate attached to it. So, so, uh, and and so so in a so the, the how interest is formulated is sort of remarkably complicated. There's an element of custom and tradition, uh, which I'd say the sort of monetary system is part of that. And then there's an element of uh, then there are these market elements. And, and and one of the reasons that one might expect. Uh, interest come down over time is that as you develop banks and financial systems then credit becomes more available. I mean if you think of it this way if you were if you were living in a sort of primitive society where you could only borrow the savings in your local village then interest rates would be higher than if you could go into the local town or city and draw on the savings collected in a bank. Um, Now to the U-shape this is why I laugh at the U-shape because it, it so happens that as a civilization, and this is true, and this is an observation of Sidney Homer, is that as civilization establishes itself, a great civilization um, such as the Mesopotamians, Babylonians, Greeks, Romans, then in each case the, the and, and then I would say going a bit further forward to sort of the the dominance of the Dutch in the in the sort of 17th and 18th century because they were some sort of leading finances that period, the interest rates come down uh, from a high level they sort of trough for a long period and then they as the civilization or the dominance of that um civilization fails then um the rates uh come up pretty sharply uh, and the reason i see the reason I smile is when I write this, I say this is hardly, you know, a comforting thought because we've just been going through the lowest interest rates in history. So if you're looking at, you know, I'm not saying you know, singling out the US, but you look at the rates, they you know, they came down, I mean, over the last you know, 40 years, um, you know, from the high double digits down to close to zero. I mean, obviously the you know, companies and so on paying, you know, you know, companies with blue chip credits paying, you know a few hundred, you know, a couple of hundred base points more, but still very low rates. And and so that, um, yeah, I, I'm not saying that that pattern repeats itself, but you see it there historically.
0: We'll be right back.
1: Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it? And what's our drive
0: for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? There's also the issue, and by the way, before I ask this question, as a historian, I liked it that I don't feel like you were trying to tell me how to think. It's almost like the history is guiding my thought process, and this leads up to one of your big ideas. I'm going to use one of the manias, uh, the Mississippi bubble crisis. And by the way, uh, I need to I need to share, be transparent with my ignorance. I did not remember that crisis, the Mississippi bubble crisis. So interest rates start to go down and then people start to make some very foolish investments. And I think this may be in France, but this is just one example of what happens when rates go down you want to pick it up from there
1: the mississippi bubble as it's known to posterity is this um events that took place uh in in the in the second decade of the 18th century in france you know, towards the end So 178 17 let's say 1718 to 1720 and um what's interesting for you know to the modern observer is this was a time when um, the Scotsman called John Law uh, came to France, got the ear of the ruler of France. Uh, and he said, you know, I'm going to, you know, the trouble with France is your debts are too high, and your interest payments are too high. And we have, you know, economic stagnation. So, And I you know, these are you know, roughly, you know, I mean, I'm stretching a bit, but I can say these are roughly the conditions that Prevailed at the end of the global financial crisis. Exa- I agree, definitely. And then, so what Law said is I'm going to get rid of gold as a currency. I'm going to replace it with paper, uh, with a paper currency. And I'm going to bring interest rates down, uh, which he does by printing money. And at the same time, he's um, because, you know, law is a man, who, you know, who hasn't heard of a conflict of interest. So he's, he's both France's um, uh, sort of finance minister. He's France's uh, head governor of the central bank. But he's also the uh, chief executive chairman and largest shareholder in in a company called the Mississippi Company, what we call the Mississippi Company, which, you know, owned half of the current United States, where probably where you're sitting today was once Part of the territory of Louisiana that was part of the Mississippi Company and a whole lot more. And uh, so when law, and this is particularly interesting, when law, when law central bank printed the money, it didn't sort of distribute it around the country. The money was used to buy Mississippi Company shares. And the Mississippi Company shares, uh, as a result of these uh, monetary facilitated uh purchases or loan facilitated uh, purchases uh they 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 increased 20 fold over a very short period of time and um uh, then everything went wrong uh, the money that initially had been used to purchase mississippi Company shares sort of leaked into the uh, wider economy there was massive inflation people lost confidence in Law's paper currency. They wanted to realise their profits, take their money out of the country or sell their Mississippi shares and turn it into gold. Uh, And this is the time in which the term realisation is actually used as as actually selling an asset and realising a profit. And Law then had to sort of scrap the scheme. He, he, He basically devalued the current, the notes, and he tried and the, when the share price came down, he tried to peg the share price, and that didn't work, and then eventually law just you know fled the country uh, and the whole scheme collapsed and the, and, the, and the paper currency was got rid of them, and the French went back to a gold-based currency. So what was interesting to me is that the modern central bankers and econ- monetary economists all think John law was a tremendously good thing. Now I think he is no doubt a genius. But he, you know, he was, he's definitely a flawed genius, too. And uh, they, and the, the, one of the law's biographers, an academic, uh, wrote a paper saying uh, that, you know, notwithstanding the failure of law, the modern central bankers, you know, Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, Mario Draghi at the ECB, they are the heirs of law. And I thought, hell, <laughs> if they are the heirs of law, we're in for rough times ahead.
0: That reminds me of one of my big takeaways in the book, and we're really talking about the laws of unintended consequences of low rates. You have a chapter about John Bull. Uh, John and I paraphrase, uh, people can stand a great deal, but they can't stand uh, 2%. And yeah. again, you're, you're smiling. And, and again, that's
1: well, one- that, that, That's a comment by the most famous 19th century uh, English uh, financial writer called Walter Badgett, and what Badgett observes is that when interest when interest rates fall to very low levels, people will, in order to maintain their income uh, or or their returns, they will take on more risk. They will do uh, stupid stupid things, and so. And, and actually, what I try and flesh out in that in the chap that particular chapter is the linkage between all the great speculative bubbles uh, from you know in, before the nineteenth century into the nineteenth century, and as in other parts of the book, I discuss later bubbles. But they all do appear to be linked to periods of of easy money or ultra easy money, and that makes sort of complete sense if you think about valuation in, in is it, because the discount rate. Uh, that you 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 apply to valuation, uh, you know you you apply has obviously a huge impact on on valuation. And in fact, Law himself um, said, you know, back in the early 80s, the future is always at a discount. So Lord Law, Law completely understood. And when his his Mississippi company was trading on a price earnings ratio of fifty times and a and a, and a dividend yield of two percent, and Law, Law said, hey. Um, there's no problem with that because the low interest rates. I, he brought interest rates down to two percent. The low interest rates validated the value of the Mississippi company. Now, if you think about it, we were hearing, you know, exactly the same a year or so ago. Yeah? and even the Fed, Federal Reserve. I'm not criticizing it, but the Federal Reserve has an evaluation model for equities which compares the the yield on on a ten year treasury to the price earnings ratio on the market. And they say, so if the treasury yield comes down, then in the Fed's model, valuation model, then the market should be at a higher value.
0: So, and that's why I love studying history. There is nothing new under the sun. It's like what we're observing today, uh, 07 and 08. Again, nothing new under the sun. This may be a good segue. You mentioned Badgett and I hope I said that name correctly, Edward. I was not familiar. Again, I, I have not studied monetary policy. I'm not a, even a junior economist, but Badgett's Rule, could you explain what that is? And now that I do know what it is, why isn't anyone following it? And I think I have an opinion, thanks to your writing, but could you explain what the rule is?
1: So the Badgett's so bad Rule was that during a period of financial crisis, the, the central bank or the Bank of England should step in and pro- provide liquidity to distressed um to distressed borrowers. Uh, but he laid some some um some conditions, which is that they were to lend against high quality collateral at a at a high rate, charge high for it. For a short period of time, and um, you know, like all good ideas, (laughs) I'm you know, let's assume it's a good idea, but you know, they become corrupted with overuse, and um, and so by the time of you know the global financial crisis, um, and if one includes what we call quantitative easing (QE) as you know, an application of the Badger Rule of, of the central bank buying securities, uh, what you find is that they were, um, you know, at least in the early stages of the crisis, uh, lending against low-quality collateral and not at a premium rate. And then, you know, these emergency measures remained in place. I mean, frankly, they're still there today in the sense that the Fed's balance sheet is still remarkably swollen, but they, you know, even you know, up until this year, the Fed was continuing to buy, uh, to buy bonds. So you can see that as a, um, as as a sort of, if you will, an inflation, <laughs> and undermining of the batch rule. But e- even even when had enunciated that principle in the nineteenth century, some contemporaries, there was a governor. You know, I you remember. I, cite this governor of the bank of england thompson Hankey, say you know ex-governor he says you know if you follow this rule people will people will assume that the bank of england will bail them out when they get in trouble and so they'll take on more risk so the problem even in its in, at, a, at its inception was that it creates you know what we call moral hazard an inducement to take more risk because risk is so to speak socialized well i mean if you think What's happened in the last 13 years or so? Um, there's been a huge amount of socialization of risk, and and the more you socialize risk, the more risk people will take. So, if you will, the more fra- you know, the, the the system itself becomes more fragile.
0: Interest typically has this negative connotation. So, right now we live in an era right now where CEOs, CFOs, other senior leadership. Uh, members are complaining because interest rates are going up. So, here's a question I've been anxious—I've been anxious to ask you. Let's say you're doing a TED talk. You're doing a TED talk, and your audience—chief executive officers, chief financial officers—you got about nine minutes, and they're 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 already upset and going to be complaining because interest their interest payments are going to be going up. What can you say to them to give them some perspective? I know the pain's not going to go away because they still have to write the check
1: so I would say that the prudent CFO like you, who has a knowledge of history, would have seen that the short term rates were at their were extraordinary low levels, and they would have then said, okay we're going to we're going to term out our borrowing we'll borrow." Long dated, and we will, so to speak, prepare ourselves for the hundred-year flood. Because uh, it, it, the rates, the, the argument of my book is that these extraordinarily low rates were a, um, it was sort of, were, were a sort of bomb, t- t- ticking time bomb in the system. So the prudent CFO uh, would have would have turned out their debt. They would also have avoided. What we call financialization, engaging too much in in financial engineering of their profits by by exchanging debt for equity. Uh, that was, you know, that that was, a, you know, when interest rates were very low. Providing your, as you know, it, providing your cost of borrowings below your uh, return on equity, you can boost your return on equity and your earnings per share by buying back the debt. But the trouble is, you know. Those times don't always last. And if you retire all your equity, your equity is a buffer. So going forward, um, frankly, I think you have to say that the age of financial engineering, which roughly runs actually from 1982, because I I point out in the book, share share buybacks were legalized in 1982, the whole LBO boom. Takes off with his Gibson greetings cards and roughly that period, and so you've had this period of, of financial engineering, whether it's private equity or buybacks, and it's gone for forty years, and it it was off the back of a long bull market in bonds, in which interest rates were going down. Now, as I point out in the book, uh, you know, interest rate cycles tend to last for decades, so we don't know the future but if we're lo- if we're looking to what happened in the past you could be expecting bond yields to rise you know possibly for the next three or four decades the rest of your career in which case uh you don't want to be and now we're moving into an inflationary period in which you know you're going to have to start paying an inflation premium on your interest so you you know the companies that have sound balance sheets and not and are not uh, and are not exposed to rising and volatile interest rates that are not over-levered, that have more equity, they will be in a better position, uh, you know, g- going forward. In other words, th- there should be a return to to prudence, to financial prudence in the management of companies. And that really is not a bad thing in the long run.
0: As I was doing a research, first of all, it came to exposed to your book, next thing I did is I went to Amazon and it's like, holy cow, you've got some other really good books. And I did listen uh, to you on a couple of other podcasts and everyone kept mentioning uh, devil take the the hindmost. And it's like, everyone's saying that's a classic. So I feel, I'm just saying, I feel guilty not knowing about that book. I just ordered it.
1: The the question,
0: the question I have,
1: that book book is in a way, a simpler book than this. It's a history of, financial speculation so there is some overlap um and i think it in a way it, it came out in the dot-com pub. it came out in 99 and you know that was, you know so everyone wanted uh <laughs> they wanted to know what well, not everyone but obviously a lot of people wanted to know what's going on so it was nicely nicely timed and in a way i think you know the, this current book we're talking about is, um, you know, obviously, I think also nicely timed, given that interest rates are rising and all hell's breaking loose, but it's inherently a more complicated subject. And in a way, it's also more nowadays, it's, you know, everything is so politically fraught. So, you know, some people have said, you know, look to my book and say, oh, this is just a uh, a polemic against central bankers, which it really isn't, actually. But, you know, now everyone, you know, now people... um, Take sort of political views on things that didn't used to be considered political. So, the fortunate thing about Devil Take the I is is that it sort of came out at a time when you know society was a time of more harmonious. So it sort of got a sort of bit of a broader coverage than this book. But yeah. I, I think in I, in both cases, I write a book that it might be read in twenty or thirty years' time. And I have no interest in 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 working on something. It's nice that the book should be timely, but it also strikes me if you're right. if you're going to sort, of, it's not very remunerative writing books. Um, if you're going to write a book, you might as well, you know, write it slightly for posterity.
0: Well, the price of time is the shelf life is going to be forever. Uh, question on the Devil Take the Hindmost: If you have not read The Price of Time, do you recommend someone reading one book or the other first?
1: No, not really. I, I think they're quite complementary. Um, probably, I say if, you, if they both arrived at the same time, I would probably read Devil Take the Hindmost first because you know I'm you know I'm a different person than I was twenty odd years ago. So the way my thoughts have matured a bit, but I, I think the, I think Devil I think Devil Take the Hindmost re I have said. <laughs> even though I read, read it myself, I think it reads nicely. It has a nice pace to it and it's got nice stories in it. So I, I, whenever I don't often look at it, but whenever I do look at it, I, I sort of, I like, I like the way it reads.
0: Well, I can't wait to read it. And the last question we ask is to everyone. So you're not off the hook. I, and I can't help it. As I'm interviewing you, you're in front of a bookcases. There are a lot of books behind you. So you are, a reader. Historians, we we have interviewed a, a number of historians and they're deep readers and they read widely. I'm anxious to hear, what are just some of your favorite books?
1: James Grant, Jim Grant, uh, uh, my friend, you know, in New York, he's really, you know, Jim is, to my mind, the you know, the greatest financial writer since Walter Badger. So Jim actually recently wrote a book, on water Badger, so that's a nice uh book to read but if you i mean you go back jim wrote a book in the early 1990s called money of the mind which is a sort of history of credit in america so i think that's a, that's jim's earliest great book and then you know i um then the you know the the great Dwayne of american economic financial historians is is charles kindleberger it is that May, may mean anything to you. So Kindleberger, I will say, he's dead now. He died, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago or something. But Kindleberger, I've got several books by him. And his famous book is called Manias, Panics and Crashes. Um, and that's a great book. I think quite, I like to see it as complementary to my own, to my devil take the high most. Then next to Kindleberger, also with a K, is this English Historian, financial historian, called David Kinnaston, and Kinnaston wrote this brilliant history of the city of London. In I'm trying to see. It, I think it's in four volumes, and that uh, ha- has marvelous. Because you, you, what people forget is you. You know, when you go into finance, it's not just about what's happening in the stock market or, or in the money markets, whatever. It's also you know the lives people were leading and and so he's written really a sort of social history of the city of London around the great events from you know the you know time of the establishment of bank of england in the late 17th century right through to you know the modern period so that i mean i'm not saying that's for everybody that book but i you know i'm i'm tremendously impressed i couldn't do it myself i mean i, I i'm very impressed by it oh, one other thing because we've been talking about uh John Law. And there's a very good biography of John Law that came out uh, three or four years ago by some called James Buchan, and It's called A Scottish Ad- Adventurer of the 18th Century. So if any of your listeners enticed by our conversation on the Mississippi Company want to read more, I'd strongly recommend James Buchan.
0: This is excellent. Uh, by the way, th- thank you for writing the book. Uh, Now I'm intrigued. I wonder what he's going to write next, but we may have to wait a while.
1: (laughs) I think I'm going to, I might work. So my old boss, Jeremy Grantham, who's a bit of a legend in America, uh, Jeremy wants to put it, wants to do a biography or autobiography. So I think I might help Jeremy on that project because I'm very fond of Jeremy uh, and he has lots of interesting stories. And then I'm doing some work on inflation. So whether that sort of turns in i i could sort of see that that if i had a a book on inflation or history of inflation that was parallel you know that if i'd done speculation, interest and in inflation, they would all sort of work together. So I think it's inflation is a you know, very difficult topic, as we're discovering <laughs> now. You know, it's, it's very complex, uh, very misunderstood. So I'm th- thinking that perhaps that's going to be my next project.
0: Edward Chancellor of the book, The Price of Time, The Real Store of Interest. You are awesome. Thank you very much for being a part of the show.
1: I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot.
0: You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now, back to
1: our host, Mark Gandy.
0: It's book club time, and that means a few questions are in order. Number one, is usury a bad word? If so, why? And if not, explain the origin of that word number two did interest predate currency and what was interest most commonly tied to according to the discussion we had with Edward number three you heard about the Mississippi company bubble are there commonalities between that story and the dot-com bubble number four What are some of the unintended consequences of low interest rates? And number five, what is Badgett's Rule, and do you believe in it? Why or why not? Edward Chancellor, The Price of Time, excellent book. Thank you very much. Guys, we need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.